Rise and Shine Pinchers, welcome back to another episode of Just a Quick Pinch. I'm your host, Connie Wang. So I'm so excited, you guys. You guys really loved the episode with Alan, uh, my financial advisor on. We asked him a bunch of questions, and so we decided to have him back for a part two of our series of Ask a Financial Advisor. Part two is really full of a lot of wisdom he shares with us, the mistakes he's made in the past with finances, the most common misconceptions, misconceptions, <laughs> misconceptions that he's heard from his clients, and of course, the million dollar question or many millions of dollars questions, how do we create generational wealth? What really is that and how can we start today from where we are? Maybe we're the first generation in our family history, which is awesome to be able to set ourselves up for this generational wealth. So today he's giving us all of his amazing wisdom. If you guys think of any more financial questions, by the way, feel free to send me a DM at, at Dr. Connie Wang on Instagram. I would be happy to compile these and set up and ask a financial advisor part three maybe with him. So with Without further ado, here is part two of Ask a Financial Advisor. Alrighty, Alan, I'm so excited to have you back. First of all, tell everyone, how was Alaska? It was so much fun. I, we did some ATVing through the backcountry. We flew down the coast and we went bear watching. Uh, we went, uh, probably the highlights, we took a helicopter to a glacier and we went dog sledding. So it's definitely one of those, you know, once maybe once in a lifetime experiences and, and we did it well. We did Alaska well. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad you got some much needed time off. Um, I'm also so glad a lot of you pinchers have written in about how you're so excited and how you learned so much from him. So we're excited to continue with part two. And I actually want to continue from the last question I asked. Uh, on the last episode, I asked you, what are the most common financial mistakes that you see? And now I want to know from you, Alan, what was a financial mistake that you made early on looking back on your experience? Yes, and and I, I want to be clear, I think it's okay to make financial mistakes. Um, you know, one of the biggest mistakes we can make is not trying or not doing anything, right? Mm. Um, and so that's a mistake in, a, in and of itself. But it's so funny, as time goes on, you saw this a lot during the pandemic, where people who made a lot of money during the pandemic would always focus in on the money that they did not make, that stock that they didn't buy, that house that they didn't buy. I think it's so funny. My dad and mom live out at a place called Lake Oconee where real estate has just gone bananas. And in the mid-90s, right before it really got going, my father had a lake lot there that they were going to build a really nice house. Mm -hmm. And building costs went up. He had a young family and they decided not to buy that house, but to buy the house that we ended up growing, uh, growing up in. And whenever we're on the boat, he punishes himself. He drives by that, that, that little cove where that lot was. Yeah. And he says, what if, what if we would have kept that, right? Well, what he doesn't realize is that the house that he ended up buying appreciated very well. Didn't appreciate it wasn't on the lake, so it didn't appreciate it as well. But it's, he still did extremely well here. And so, no matter who you are, you're always going to look back and probably have some financial regrets and mistakes of I should have done that. What's important is that we don't allow those regrets to influence us in the future. So, looking at me personally, there's a couple things that I would have done differently. Number one. I would have tried to purchase a home a lot earlier than I did. Mm. And so I think I purchased my first home. I was probably 26 or 27, meaning I graduated in 22. And that means I rented for about five years. 
Um, I like to collect homes. We've got a lot of rental properties. It would have been really nice and, and frankly easy to scoop one more up than if I would have purchased a home at age 24. So maybe get a couple years of working in me, have a couple years tax returns, get some, uh, some stability. And so I know a lot of people when they get out of college, they go live with their roommates or their best friends and they have roommates and all that stuff. Um, well, how cool would it be if you own the house, right? And those roommates were paying you the rent and you were able to start your rental uh, empire there. So that's one regret that, um, that looking back, I think if I, you know, if I had had somebody or a coach to tell me, hey, go do that, that would have added, uh, been an easy way to add another property there. So um, the second thing, and, and, you know, the listeners here may not have this issue, but remember I graduated in 2010 in 08 and 09 was a legitimate crisis. I mean, the earth was falling. The economic system was legitimately collapsing. Not like, hey, news is blown out of proportion. No, it was that bad. And so when I got in uh, and started earning money, there was a huge distrust mm. of the stock market and of the economy. And what I didn't realize at the time that's pretty prevalent now is that that 08, 09, 2010 timeframe might have been the absolute best times to buy homes, to buy stocks. And you look at the growth that it's had. And uh, so that's one of the, the, the things. And you're hearing that from the financial advisor, right? My father was a business owner. We'll talk about him later. He likes tangible assets, assets mm. that he can touch, right? The stock market was not something that he had a lot of trust in. And frankly, it was just, just an educational standpoint. He'd never been educated on it. And so looking back, um, when I started my career, we were working on a lot of other different assets and ways of growing wealth. Um, but, you know, the stock market was something that it took me personally some time to warm up to and definitely cost me some dollars there. So that's one thing that, uh, you know, I would... I encourage people to do is that there is a direct correlation between education and comfort level with the stock market. Mm -hmm. The more educated people are, the more comfortable they are with the stock market and the riskier they are because they look at this and they say, hey, if the more aggressive we are over time, studies have shown the higher rate of return we will get. Right. And so it's it's hard to bet against the stock market and win. So I would look at that tail and take it to yourself and say, hey, you know, if you're not comfortable with the stock market, probably time that we spend some time uh, getting educated on it because it's a great way to build wealth. Got it. And, you know, I have to ask just because I'm sure this is something that you get a lot at weddings. What are your thoughts on bitcoins? Ah, <laughs> um, yeah, no, great question here. So, huh, you know, I think that there's a place in this world for Bitcoin. I think okay. that there's a place in this world for cryptocurrencies. I kind of equate it going back to the uh, to the 90s there, where we had the dot-com bubble, where okay. internet, internet was coming out. And if your company had a website with dot-com after it, it was growing in value. And then people realized, hey, some of these companies have zero value here. And then all of a sudden that led to a stock market sell-off. Um, that was pretty big, honestly. And so I think that that might be a really good cautionary tale for cryptocurrencies. 
hey, Go cryptocurrencies on. might be the way of the future. I'm not saying that they're not. I am saying, I will say two things. Um, there was a ton of cryptocurrencies, and I don't think that there's a space for, for all those cryptocurrencies. I think that one, maybe two will emerge as uh, you, you know something that is used every day. The second thing is that it was billed as a currency, mm -hmm. and it's clearly not. Uh, at this moment in time. Yes, you can trade it for something, but you can trade a stock for something too. You can trade anything and it's bartering right there. But for a currency to be effective, it's got to be stable. And for it to be stable, I think that the valuations were really high. And so they've calmed down and maybe at some point we'll find the right place where Bitcoin's stable enough to be actually used as a currency. Got it. Now, in the financial world, I feel like by the time someone might like me learns about these things, it's because like the internet and yep. uh, like a uh, TikTok or like yep. news articles. Are there any up and coming things in the financial world that like maybe us lay people haven't heard rumblings of yet? Any new updates or things we should know? You know, um, the answer is, is even once it gets to TikTok, it's probably too late. Yeah, you know, that's right. A great example is... Um, Lately, it seems like every single... By the way, I'm a huge fan of financial TikTok. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason being is that I cannot go on there and say those things. I've got compliance. I've got limitations, right? The people who are doing this, they have no limitations. They can say whatever, right? And sometimes it's inaccurate, but oftentimes it's very insightful. And the ones that are good, the ones that are inaccurate tend to get pointed out quickly and get shut down. The ones that are accurate tend to get into the algorithm. So... What I love is that my clients see this stuff and they come to me and they say, hey, is this legitimate? And we say, you know, and it's either, well, maybe, but we got to think about this or heck yeah. And so one of those would be the Augusta rule. All right. So that is on every TikTok I've seen lately. Okay. It's basically, it's based off of the masters and um, it's based off the masters in Augusta, Georgia, basically says you can rent your home out for less 14 days or less a year, and you don't have to pay income taxes on that. Okay, all right. Well, who wants to rent out their home? Uh, not not very many people. You might, if you're gonna go away for two weeks and you wanna find somebody to to uh, that needs a place to stay for a couple weeks, you might want to rent it out, make a couple extra grand. That's tax-free money right there. Right? You do need to document, you need to have a good agreement there. Um, but where it's hugely popular is if you own your own business. Now, all of a sudden, your business can rent it from you. For I, for instance, I do client dinners. I hold, I hold quarterly retreats for our team, right? And so those are legitimate reasons that I've documented to do that. So that's one example of something that's been around for a really, really, really long time. But now financial TikTok has brought it out of the woodworks. The truth is, um, oftentimes, even by the time that TikTok gets hold of it, it's probably not new anymore. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what we call an efficient market. An efficient market means that all information is known everywhere, right? That's a perfectly efficient market. That means that there is no ability to do insider trading. There is no ability to get ahead um, on a stock, right? It's an efficient market. Well, as we know, that not all not all markets are efficient right there. So what's great about financial TikTok is it's brought down the amount of time that it takes to get from the people who really know to the masses. A great example of this is um, financial TikToks that follow what senators are doing with their money. Oh right? my gosh, I love that. <laughs> when senators are selling money and they're sitting in on these committees that know things well before everybody else, you know, yeah. that is a really good 
uh, you know, TikTok to follow right there, right? So that's, that's so what true. I love. The amount of time that it's taking to get from the people who really know and making the decisions to the masses is shrinking. And over time, that will continuously get closer and closer and make these markets more efficient. Okay. So this might be like a textbook economics question. But so, you know, when, when you say things like inefficient market, yeah. do markets cycle through phases of being efficient and then inefficient and then back to efficient? All right. Yeah. So I think we're talking about uh, um, there is something called a market cycle. Right. Okay. And, and markets continuously go through these cycles where they grow, they peak, they contract and they trough. Right. I would consider, and then they grow again after troughing. You got it. Okay. You got it. Right. So if you were to look at the S&P 500 here, you could clearly see the dot com bubble and then you clearly see the 08 bubble. And then you would think that at some point we would clearly, you know, market cycles would happen in the last 10 years or so. But it's definitely unique times now. But if you were to magnify all the years prior to the dot-com bubble, you would see the same exact wave motion going, right? And so now to be clear, that's S&P 500. That's the stock market. That's different than the economy. The economy, the stock market's more of a leading indicator of the economy. The okay. economy last year, the stock market went down over 25% or so. And why? Because it was anticipating a market decline, right? A recession. And um, now all of a sudden the markets are going up. Why they're leading indicator we're getting good news, right? So the, the, the stock market is not the economy in that sense. And when we're talking about market cycle, we are talking about the economy. But remind me of the question because I was leading to... Oh, yeah. I was just curious if markets tend to go through phases of being efficient and then inefficient. inefficient or if more. inefficient is even a phrase. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. Absolutely. An inefficient market. So let me give you a good example. Um, just, you know, a, a very good example here is large cap stocks. Okay. Okay. When you're looking at an Apple stock, we know a lot about that company. We okay. know almost everything in real time about that company, all right? It's a public company. It's got to report a lot of things. It's very much in the news every day. It's very hard for a company like Apple to get something biased, right? Okay. That is what we would call and, and so the large cap market has a lot of companies like Apple that are having to disclose a lot. They're publicly traded, right? So that is what we would call a very efficient market. Now let's say that there's a startup in Asia, okay? There's a startup in Asia. It's not publicly traded. A lot of people don't know about this. It's just getting started and they might have a technology that's gonna, it's gonna blow artificial intelligence out of the water. Who knows, right? Well, there's a whole slew of those companies. A lot of these startup companies, they don't have to report as much. They're not publicly traded. There's not as much information about, out there, right? Okay. And so that's what we would call an inefficient marketplace. Now let's take this one next one next level here. When somebody's conducting a portfolio of stocks and bonds, we like to have something called ETFs, exchange traded funds. Those are run by algorithms, okay? And we like to have mutual funds. These are actively managed funds, actively managed by people, all right? What we want to do when we are constructing a portfolio is have that active passive mix. Have some funds, have some ETFs. We don't know what's going to do better. Are the algorithms right. together or are the people going to do better? We don't know. Verdict's still out. Certain times, algorithms do better. Certain times, people do better. But here's the bigger thing. What if we were to use algorithms 
and more efficient marketplaces, like an S&P 500 algorithm, right? But maybe we use a mutual fund in some foreign markets or in some small cap stocks that are still growing, okay. right? Or in bond markets that are not as efficient. So what we're trying to do when we devise a portfolio, we're trying to use algorithms in the more efficient markets, trying to use mutual funds in the more inefficient markets. Wow, that's so interesting. That makes a lot of sense because it's like they both have their own strengths in certain situations. Sure. So you might as well maximize it by mixing in the two options. Yeah, um, and who knows? One day maybe these algorithms are so darn good that they will beat the, the actively managed mutual funds. Mm. Um, and you can, it's really easy to make an argument that we might already be there. However, mm. I do believe in a little bit of diversification there. Um, as I do think that a good active manager in an inefficient market, uh, you know, seems, seems a really good chance of performing well. Now, so we talked a lot about, you know, mistakes that are made and things like that. What about misconceptions? Like, what are a couple, two to three most common misconceptions your clients tend to have? Yeah, so I would say right off the bat, um, the biggest misconception we think is that their company will take care of them in all of their needs. At work? Yeah, at work, okay. right? So if somebody goes in and what do you do in the first couple of weeks? You sign up for the employee benefits. Oh my gosh, I got life insurance for free or for really cheap, that's awesome. Oh my goodness, I've got disability income insurance for free or really cheap, that's great. Hey, I've got a 401k here, that's perfect, right? And so all of a sudden, we got our health insurance Say, so, hey, I don't need a financial advisor. I don't need any additional products. I've got I've got that through my company. Mm. Well, let's just take a little bit deeper dive into that. All right. First of all, how much life insurance do you actually have through your company? Typically it's fifty thousand dollars or one times your salary. Okay. Is that enough for your current situation and is it enough for your future needs? Second of all, then, well, hey, I, yes, but I can buy up to three to four times my salary and life insurance. Okay, well, that's great. But let me ask you this. Typically, those are guaranteed issue products, meaning you don't have to apply for them. That means that they're going to be more attractive to people who are in bad health because that means that the premiums are going to have to be more. Maybe it would be a lot cheaper for you to go out there, depending on your health and your age, and get a individual life insurance policy there. Not only that, if you move companies, Whatever you have at your old company won't be there anymore. And maybe you don't have as good of benefits at the new company. So if you get something individually, it'll transfer with you there. So that's one example. Another example, say on the insurance front, would be disability income insurance. Okay, yes, your company offers you disability income insurance. But how much? Well, it's 60%. Okay. Is it really 60% or is it 60% taxable? Right. Well, oh, oh shoot, the company is giving it to you for free. That means that they're deducting it on their taxes. That means that's income taxable to you. Now, all of a sudden, you get sick or hurt, you're getting 45% of your income, right? So it's free. Free is good, right? But we do like to supplement that a little bit. So one of the biggest misconceptions is that our company will take care of us. And that goes into the investment world, too, with the 401k. 401ks are great, great vehicles, right? Um you know, if the cash flow is there, oftentimes we are recommending people maximize that that out and take advantage of the tax advantages. That being said, you know, that's not the only thing that we need to be doing with our money. If we're putting all of our money into, into a traditional 401k, that means we're taking the tax advantage up front. We don't have to pay taxes on that money up front. 
but we are essentially going into business with the U.S. government, okay? We are going into business with Uncle Sam because at some point, right, we took the tax deduction up front. It's going to grow tax deferred. When we go to take that money out, Uncle Sam's going to want his piece, right? Now, here's the thing about going into book business with Uncle Sam. At any point in time, they can change the ownership percentage of what they want to take. And just looking at where we are as a country with all the debt that we have, I just have a hard time believing that we're going to be able to service all this debt at these higher interest rates without collecting more revenue. And we all kind of know what collecting more revenue means, right? So we're in a historically low tax bracket. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe when we retire, who knows what the tax bracket will be in 30 years. But that's a great example of saying if you have all of your money in a 401k, you're leaving yourself vulnerable. Now that I'm thinking about everything that you're teaching me, it actually makes me think about a very exciting part of your life, which is that you have a daughter on the way. Congratulations. Thank you. Are you excited for fatherhood? <laughs> I, I am so excited. You know, uh, just, you know, personal note, it, it, it definitely, uh, it took a little longer than we anticipated on this. Mm. So this was a challenging uh, time in our life here over the last three years. And luckily, um, we were able to be successful with IVF. And so we are expecting a December 8th baby here. Um, and this may not surprise you. I have her entire future already planned. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually exactly so the reason why I bring up your daughter is just because something that you've told me before is that you are interested in writing children's books, right? And I wanted to know too, what are some of the financial advice, hacks, tips, things that you want to instill in your daughter early on? And these are also, you know, things for our audience to know and teach their own children someday. The quote that always comes up when I think about raising kids and getting them a head start and building multi-generational wealth is that I, I hope every parent's goal is to make their ceiling their kid's floor, mm. right? And I know that my parents certainly helped put us in a position to make that happen. And you know, they benefit a lot from that too, because now we're able to take them out to ball games and take them to <laughs> yeah. dinner, right? You know, so, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's an awesome opportunity there. So, but how do we do that? How do we make our ceiling there for and, and build in almost like a, you know, a going upstairs here, building multi-generational wealth? Um, the first couple of things that I would say is that obviously, uh, think about being in an airplane and you're going through the safety where they always tell you, hey, put the oxygen mask on yourself first, right? So the best thing that you can do to build and help your kids get a good start is to take care of your and steward your own finances, right? That is by far the best way to build uh, multi-generational wealth. It's the old fashioned way of inheriting it, right? And mm. so if we can take care of your finances, right, that's going to be a great leading indicator of this. Now, in order for you to do that, the second thing is you got to educate yourself, right? So we're talking the problem, um, well, it's not just in this country. By the way, it, it, the problem is that money originally was a taboo topic mm. and very few people talked about it. And so there wasn't a transfer of information. There wasn't a transfer of wealth. Right. Um, and so you might look at yourself and say, well, how do I talk to my kids about money when I don't even know myself? Right. And so you've got to lead by example here. And there's probably not much more important to learn about than money, 
you've got to educate yourself. And then as you do that, you're going to be in a better position to educate your kids, right? And that's where these books are going to come in is hopefully we can help those educate your kids. So yeah, talk to me about when did you even decide to start writing children's books? Yeah, so uh, as we talked about in the last episode, we just published um, my book, Empowered Money. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you something that was um, not fun to write. Okay, <laughs> so uh, I hope you enjoy it because that was painstaking. And the entire time I'm like, how much more fun would it be to write a children's book? Ah. Right. So what I want to do here is I want to take um, my kids and as they grow up, write books for them at that stage of life. I love that. So the biggest thing that I want to do, um, we're going to use, we just decided that we are going to use my dogs as a main characters, right? So oh. I've, got, I've got two dogs. I've got uh, Jack Russell. Um, yeah. Jack Russell male, his name is Bo, and then I've got a black lab female named Molly, right? And so, and, and the moral of the story here, I think what we're going to roll with is that Bo, the male, is very much a prissy Jack Russell, okay? <laughs> he loves to go shopping. He He's adorable. He was actually on a movie set one time and refused and only drank the cucumber water that was oh there. Oh my God. The normal water, right? So that's the kind of dog that he is. Whereas Molly's kind of happy with everything, right? And she just wants to go out and chase the tennis ball. That's all she wants, right? So my thought is, why don't we make both of them characters and show them how, you know, being a little bit more grounded and being... Uh, finding enjoyment in the simple things can help them financially. So basically, they're both going to get an allowance, and Bo is going to spend all of his allowance on like gold chains and jewelry and all this stuff, and Molly's yeah. going to save her money. And then over time, you know, it's going to go full circle where Bo's the cool person in high school, right? And yeah. then he's going to be sleeping on Molly's couch one day, right? So that's kind of where that that's the the proof of concept right there that we're going to work on. But the idea is trying to create a, a kid's book for each age as they get older, so that mm. they can just better understand, um, and eventually do one for middle school and high school, and and leading up to the one that we just released, which is empowered money, which is kind of the phase of, of life that my wife and I, uh, frankly, probably just left, mm -hmm. um, but. but you know, so we could we could speak to that one rather freshly. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I myself will be purchasing these books <laughs> because I really want to dive into the world of Bo and Molly. Um, yes. I actually, I thought of you the other day because you really struck me when the last episode you said how the key to like wealth, building wealth is actually the simple things. It's like the opposite of what you would, of what you would think, enjoying the simple oh. things. So Jimmy and I have implemented a new thing in our household where we used to be, we love ice cream, but we used to go out to eat a lot. Now we bought like, you know, a big thing of like, cones at home and ice cream at home and every night we have our little like old couple moment in the kitchen with our ice cream cones but we save so much that way <laughs> yeah ab absolutely right and and it becomes an event and maybe one day yeah. you'll have family and maybe you'll one day get an ice cream maker right oh and my you, god you know and, and now all of a sudden it's a bit yeah and i would say this um that is what we have done with our meals like we used mm. to go out on a friday night but uh, it, it was so exhausting after a long week of work. And so what we did is we ended up, um, you know, having steaks with the Franks, 
every Friday night. Where oh my would, gosh. Where we would cook steaks. We invite our friends over to our house. And, you know, it's not necessarily that we spent that much less money, but we were able for to, to feed six or eight people for the price that it would have been for one of us to go to a steakhouse, right? And, and so, the value of having those memories. Yeah, absolutely, right? And so I think in this world of hyperinflation right now, we've got to get a little bit more tactical about where we are spending our money. Because I know when I go out to eat now, it seems like there's no more $20 entree for dinner options. It's like no. <laughs> 50 bucks per person, right? Yeah. And so inflation's really taken a huge hit on restaurants because wage inflation. Um, and so, I, you know, I think we've got to get creative uh, around how we're going to spend our, our weekends and have fun because mm. it's just getting kind of excessive with how, how much things are getting. I feel like I feel like I'm in college again. I'm hitting, <laughs> I'm hitting up the happy hour from five to six, you know, um, doing stuff like that because I just can't justify spending that much on a meal. Yeah, we never thought we'd be back to it, but we're back to the dollar margaritas and the happy hours and all that. That's right. The Taco yeah. Tuesday where the tacos are a dollar off, right? Yeah, so. that's right. <laughs> um, before we move on to talking more about generational wealth, you are like a wealth of knowledge when it comes to practical things that you can do to set your children up for success. What are some of those practical things? Yeah. Um, so, you know, right off the bat, um, and, and I'm certain that I'm going to learn more on this as I start to implement this. But uh, just something, let me share with you what I'm going to do with, mm. with, with my daughter, right? And because I'm going to do anything and everything I can to help give her a, a good start. Um, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to put her name on, on our credit cards. Uh, I graduated college with a very poor credit score. I had no credit history. I had a few overdraft withdrawals. I did not know that was a thing until I went to buy a car. And they're oh, like, no. yeah, I like my credit score that bad. I've never borrowed money. So um, I want to make certain that I'm going to give her, yeah, and when she graduates college, she'll have 22 years of good credit history, right? That's the one thing. Now, to be clear, it can backfire for people who get into trouble. So you got to be careful on which credit cards you put her on. Hmm. Got to make certain to pay those on time. But um, getting your kid a head start with credit is going to allow them to go purchase that house earlier, like we talked about or uh, talked about um, mm -hmm. earlier here. Um, the second thing is that uh, you know you got to check on the state that you live in. But sometimes there's a tax advantage to putting money into your state's 529 college education fund. Right? Okay. And so I know in Georgia you can put up to four thousand dollars per kid, per year in there, and you will get a state income tax deduction. Now, it's not a huge deal. State taxes in Georgia are about 6%, right? So it's not like massive, but it is an automatic 6% rate of return right there um, on that. And what's good is that they're making rules. They just came out with a new rule that's making the 529 education plan a little bit more useful outside of school. Mm. So, um, you know, it's something that I would not encourage people to overfund 529 plans, but is, uh, you know, there's more than likely going to be some college expense. So getting ahead there uh, on that. So uh, the third thing that I'm going to do, I'm going to purchase a life insurance policy on my kid. Um, there is not a better time to get a life insurance policy than at age zero. 
right? Why? Because each life insurance policy has a mortality expense attached to it. Oh. That mortality expense goes up with two things. Well, really three. Number one is your age, right? As you get older, right, that mortality expense will go up. The second thing is whether or not you're male or female, which we don't, you know, we can't control, but females do, or women do live longer, right? Um, the third thing's health, right? Well, I would argue that, uh, you know, people tend not to get healthier over time. Um, so, you know, locking in their age at age zero and their health will get them a really good life insurance policy. And as long as you're getting the right life insurance policy for them, it'll last them forever. And now all of a sudden we are creating multi-generational wealth in two capacities. Number one, Permanent life insurance policies tend to have a cash value within them that will grow and that they can use for a wedding plan or they can use for college education or they can use for their retirement or all of the above. But there's also a death benefit that will be there. Now, all of a sudden, that death benefit will go to your future grandkids, right? So there's a really good book out there called um, What the Rockefellers Did, and it talks about just buying life insurance on kids and, you know, there's kind of a, a rule of the family that, hey, we're going to have money in a trust and we're going to use that to buy life insurance on the kids. And that's going to ensure that our money just transfers down perpetually. Oh, that's so awesome. And this is exactly like the kind of information that like the average person wouldn't really know about. Right. That's right. And, and the only other thing I would mention is that, you, you know, if you if you or your spouse own a business, mm -hmm. then you can put the kids on the payroll here. Um now, the standard deduction uh, in our country, it goes up every year. I think it's around $13,000 this year. So that means if you were to put a kid on a payroll, now listen, you have to have documentation. They have to be a legitimate employer. So how do you put a somebody, a one-year-old on your payroll? Oh, well, you can use modeling pictures, for instance, right, and come up with agreement there. But you could theoretically hire your kid, pay them $13,000, deduct that from your business, they get the $13,000. They use the standard deduction to not pay anything. And then you can use that $13,000 to fund a Roth IRA for them, um, maybe pay that life insurance, who knows, right? Um, so save for college education, right? So if you're a business owner, there's a few more tax strategies that you can employ. In wow, that is such a helpful tip. That is so good to know. So the last segment I really wanted to discuss creating generational wealth. This is something that, you know, all my listeners, I we hear about, we want it, but it almost seems like this elusive thing, maybe, that like unless you're really intentional about educating yourself on, there, there's a lot to learn with this. So I know it's like a big topic, but what are a couple nuggets of wisdom that you can tell my audience about in terms of creating generational wealth? Right. So, so the first thing I would say is that most families are one or two generations away from being wealthy. Okay. At any point in time, one or two generations can, can start creating generational wealth, right? Um, but it takes that first generation to get it going, right? Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of willpower. And one of the best things, I'm so privileged in so many ways, but I was able to grow up and watch my parents jump up into another socioeconomic group, right? Mm. Going to middle class to upper class. And I saw the work and the focus and the determination that it took to make that jump. And I saw this firsthand, and so I was more apt to go out and work hard and stay focused and, and do the things that we needed to do, right? So I got to see my parents do this in real life, which is just an un unbelievable example. So I would say this, at any point in time, you are one or two generations away. 
from creating generational wealth. For instance, let's say that somebody goes and becomes a doctor, right? Obviously, doctors make a really good income there. They steward that income wisely. They're going to create multi-generational wealth right there in that one generation, okay? Maybe people aren't a doctor, but maybe somebody talks to their kids about money and shows them how to do it. And they may not even have money, but they train their kids to be good people. They get them into good schools. They train, they go off to be a good profession and they have financial education. That's another way that we can build multi-generational wealth. So it only takes one to two generations. I'll also say this, it takes, takes less than one generation to ruin generational wealth, right? Mm, yeah, right? I'm sure. So the same way that lack of education can um, keep you from building generational wealth. The lack of education can also cause people to lose generational wealth. And we see this all the time with wealthy families whose kids are not educated and frankly, maybe not taught just how to be a general good person, right? <laughs> and uh, next thing you know, their generational wealth has really gone, gone down. Um, so we talked about the Rockefellers a little bit. Um, but what about the Car the Carnegies, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go, um, uh, you, you know, uh, Anderson Cooper on CNN, he's he's part yeah. of that family, and you never, besides him, you never hear of anybody else in that family. Whereas the Rockefellers still have this unbelievable trust, and they do a lot of great work with charities, and they give back a ton. You never heard hearing anything about the Carnegies. Why? Uh, because they didn't do that. They did not keep their money together. They did not, uh, you know, their, their their kids spent a lot of their money throughout the time. And so, you know, that's two uh, two families that were very prominent. And one still is. And frankly, the other one, you just don't hear about all that often, right? So even wealthy people, you know, uh, can lose that wealth if they're not if they're not teaching their kids. What yeah. about someone, so, so let's say they are now the generation, they're that doctor yeah. and they have that ability. What's that yep. first step then to creating yep. that generational wealth? Great, so so when you look at the three main ways of building wealth in, mm -hmm. in, in our country right now, we have an unbelievable ability to go out and start a business. Most mm -hmm. countries, it, it, yes, there's red tape. Yes, it's very hard in this country. It's very hard in every country, but a lot of other countries it's even harder, right? Mm. If people are business owners, they own the bakery, it's because their father owned the bakery and their father's father owned that bakery, right? Um, but by starting and selling a business is one of the best ways to build wealth. Now, it's exceptionally hard, and studies have shown only around 10% of the population are wired to be entrepreneurs. So it's mm. not a very good, consistent, foolproof way of building wealth. The stock market, though, is, and the stock market is something that anybody can realistically get into. All you got to do is check the box when you're doing your employee benefits, and they're going to automatically take money out of your paycheck and put it into a 401k. If you, they may even match part of what you put in. And so the stock market is a great way of building wealth, and the reason being is you, you don't have to monitor it all that much. You can put the money in, and when you put money in the stock market, you are buying shares of a company. That company is highly incentivized to grow and be profitable. Okay, so they're going to hire really good people that are going to work really hard to grow that company. When that company grows, your share obviously grows with it. Therefore, your portfolio grows with it. Therefore, your net worth grows with it. So you can work really hard and dedicate your life to starting your own company and selling it, or 
you can work a nine to five, put the money in the stock market, and lo and behold, give it time. You know, typically with time, the market grows, right? And so the stock market is by far the most common way of building wealth in America because it's the easiest, it's the most accessible. And as technology gets better, it's making it uh, a much more efficient way. Got it. Now, there is a third way. There is a third way, um, and it's through real estate, right? And so it's, you know, if you look back at the homes that your parents owned and the homes and, and what they're worth now and what they sold it for back then, right? That is one of those things where you're like, man, if we could have just held on to this house, how much would that be, right? So one of the things I don't like to do, I don't like to sell real estate because I've seen what my family sold. I'm like, well, shoot, if you had held on to that, you know, we would you know, be in a lot better situation. So I like to uh, buy a house, live in it, rent it, rent it out, go buy another house, live in it, rent it out, go buy another house. And so um, in, the, in the fintech world, that would be called house hacking. Right, okay. using traditional loan to go purchase a home that we're going to live in for a couple of years, and then we'll save up for a down payment on the next home. Go buy another home, rent out the old home. Right? Mm. And so um, that I believe real estate and the stock market are two really good ways that you can build wealth long term. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that tip. That is so helpful and so tangible, I feel like, for my audience that's listening because a lot of times, you know, it's like we want to find out what to do next, but we just don't know what that first step is. So that is super helpful for everyone. I don't know how this happens every time we start talking. The hour flies by. So, but Alan, share with us where we can find you again, and I would love to have you back. That's right. That's right. So so our website is themillfp.com. Um, and you can also check out my book at empowered-money.com, or you could just shoot me an email at alan at themillfp.com. We'd love to chat with you. We'd love to see if we can help you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alan. And thank you so much for everyone for listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah.